Pella Windows and Doors of Wisconsin plays at an MVP level. When the Pella people left, you had no idea they had been here. You just had the new window. Pay as low as $19 a month per window or $75 per month on patio doors. Visit PellaWI.com today. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at the Avenue, it's the Jeff Wagner Show. Come join the conversation on the Old National Bank Talk and Text Line at 855-616-1620. Old National Bank. Get old. Now, here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome to the show. So Vince Vitrano, freeway closed, 94 West closed because a truck, a boom truck, hit the 35th Street overpass. So when we first heard truck hit overpass, I'm like, that's not possible. How can you be on the freeway system, right, for very long? Because the bridges at least have a universal sort of low ceiling, right? So how far could you get? But this, I have not seen video directly of the impact, but this has got to be one of those things where you have like, maybe it's a cherry picker or something that goes up and elevates up and might have been left in sort of an upward position and clip the top of that freeway uh, overpass. We do not have an estimate at least yet as to how long this is going to be and you, you don't mean to be a negative nelly but when when you hear hitting an overpass that's a big deal because it's not just a question of cleaning up the freeway but it's having to come out and make sure that the overpass is structurally sound that's the, and this is that this is this is the 35th street bridge right this a, is yeah this is 35th street and yeah. astute observation jeff because what the milwaukee county sheriff's office is telling us is it is cl- closed for uh clean up and repair so to your point right one well, thing to get things out of the way another thing to check and make sure this uh, overpass is okay for right traffic because right because the last thing you want is is a car going over the overpass and then it, it collapses on the freeway things so, falling off on on it, the traffic below it, funny how that works so so we'll we will continue <laughs> we'll continue i'm thinking oh because you see the, the only and this isn't schadenfreude or anything but of course as somebody who lives you know um on the north shore who's been putting up with the i-43 construction on a daily basis where you never know from one day it might be 15 minutes it might be an hour depending on what's going on so i I don't wish this on anybody but whenever i hear freeway closure i'm always thinking it's 43 either north or south because that's what i've been dealing with for the last x number of months no margin for error there i have a couple of people i go visit my doctor is up there in mequon uh in mequon cedarburg area um my barber is up there so i make that trip fairly regularly and yeah, that's no well, margin for error in well, there. well right because there are i mean there are portions of and again i, I think everybody says it's going to be great once they get it done in 2025 but you know, which is which is small consolation but the problem is at some point in time it, it's so narrow that there are spots where there are are just two lanes and if you have a collision or something or you have a disabled vehicle you can't get emergency vehicles in you can't get it's just it's just which is why like last week there was the day you had a truck that that had a problem in the worst spot and it was an hour delay and you just never know. And we've talked about this no viable alternative right now right. with construction on Port Washington, with construction on Green Bay. It's like give me, it's like in golf. There's some courses that are just too hard. I look at this course and I'm on the tee box and I, give me a miss here. If it's out of bounds left and it's a hazard to the right and you also have a, a real precise carry, 
give me a miss here. See, this course what, is too that's hard. That's what I like about you, Vince. You're able to bring everything back to golf. It works. You know, it works. <laughs> exactly. Anyways, we'll keep, can you continue to keep you updated about what's going on on I on I-94 westbound. But right now it's closed at 35th Street. Truck hits an overpass. And uh, I, we don't have an estimate. Hopefully they'll be able to get it open sooner rather than later. But right now it's an absolute mess. So take alternative routes to avoid this. Okay. Um, first of all, thanks to Tracy Johnson for filling in for me yesterday. I had a just an eye doctor's appointment, and it was one of those things where they dilate your eyes, and it takes a couple hours for you to be able to see. So took one of the sick days that Good Karma is so kind to give me, and appreciate Tracy filling in. Let's get started. Uh, if you follow me on Twitter, it's at Jeff Wagner 620. I, I, I posted this the other day. If you want to understand in a microcosm why Milwaukee County in particular is so out of control. This is the story that does it. Okay, so um, here here is the deal. Um, There's a woman named Nicole Boehringer, um, and October 20th of 2022, Nicole Boehringer was um, 40 years old. She was struck and killed while walking a neighbor's dog. Here's what happened. October 20th, 2022, 11.05 p.m., a car heading southeast on Appleton Avenue struck her as she was walking her dog. The car did not stop. Um, she had just moved to the neighborhood earlier this week. Okay, so here's here's the evidence. So the car, it's a hit and run, drives off, the woman is dead. Um, officers found a Buick Verano with front-end damage in a motel parking lot near the crash site. Okay, so they find the car. The damage was consistent with having hit a person, according to the criminal complaint. Debris was found in the roadway, including a piece of a Carvana license plate bracket. Um, the owner of the car was a guy named Calvin Gardner. So you have the car. The woman is hit. She's killed. The car drives off. They find the car that is involved in this hit and run in a motel parking lot close to the incident. It's got a license plate on it. The license plate comes back to Calvin Gardner. All right. This is this is if you're a prosecutor, trust me on this. This is pretty much low hanging fruit. A medical examiner determined that the woman suffered multiple blunt force injuries consistent with being struck by a motor vehicle, ruled it to be the cause of her death. An eyewitness Another motorist spotted the damaged car and later saw a man wearing a gray oversized hoodie standing on the sidewalk, nervously smoking a cigarette. The motorist also saw a twisted body, but initially didn't think it was that of a person. The witness told police they saw the man get into his vehicle and either drive slowly or push the vehicle to a motel parking lot where the police later found it. Cameras recorded some of the incident. Video footage captured on the motel surveillance system shows a man walking around the vehicle, inspecting damage and later removing something from inside. He then walks away from the vehicle and the parking lot, according to the prosecutors, when they come back. okay, so it's the guy's car. It's registered to him. He's on video. They question him about this. He lies to police early in the investigation to, quote-unquote, avoid getting in trouble. Hey, you've hit and killed a woman. You've driven off. You've abandoned the car. All right, you look at this case and you say, this is, from a perspective of, of prosecuting the case as a prosecutor, th- this is this is what we call low-hanging fruit. 
I mean, this is what you would call the guy wants to go to trial. It is what we used to describe as a slow guilty plea, right? Overwhelming evidence. All right. So what does John Chisholm's district attorney's office do? Well, first they charge the guy in June with hit and run resulting in death, which is what this is. A class D felony punishable by up to 25 years in prison. You hit and kill somebody, you drive off, you lie to the cops. It's a dead bang winner, no pun intended from a prosecution perspective. So what does the DA's office do? They plea bargain it. Here's the case. They plea bargain this down. He pleads instead of a 25-year felony hit and run causing death, he pleads guilty to homicide by negligent operation of a vehicle, a Class G felony that carries a maximum of five years in prison. You've got, and then, of course, it, it goes to Milwaukee County Circuit Court, and the judge judge pretty much maxes him out. The judge gives him, but instead of having 25 years to work with, he's only got five years. The judge gives him four years, four months. So that's not the problem. The problem is the district attorney, and this is the soft on crime, John Chisholm, and this is the approach, they give the case away. Instead of simply saying, all right, we're going to try this case, because what this guy did was hit and run, resulting in death. It's, oh, well, all right, we're going to give the case away. He'll plead guilty to a five-year felony. You know, now, I guess you should get credit for the guy being charged in the first place. But this is a situation where what he did is not at all reflected in what he ended up pleading pleading guilty to. And, and yes, I understand he goes to prison for four years, but he should have gone to prison for a lot more. But that was limited by the district attorney's office, soft on crime. We're going to give the case away. We're not willing to go to trial. I mean, you go to trial with this case. I cited the facts there. He wants to get on the witness stand and argue that that was somebody other than him that did it. Um, good. Let him do it. Let him make that argument. But this was, again, it's one of these sort of gutless decisions, not holding people accountable. Look, I'm not always anti-plea bargains. But, you know, what you have to have is most responsible district attorney's offices will say, look, you've got a plea to the most readily provable charge that's there. And this is a clear-cut case of hit-and-run resulting death. The story in the Journal Sentinel says that um, the woman's friends and family weren't pleased with the sentence, calling it too lenient. Um, her mother says, I don't know what kind of monster hits someone, then takes off. Parents aren't supposed to bury their children. No, they're, they're not. But it, again, the, the beef isn't with the judge's sentence. The beef is with this plea bargain that reduces the guy's exposure from 25 years down to five. It's giving the case away. And this happens on a regular basis in Milwaukee County. And if you wonder why people do these sort of things, as we've talked about, the, the clearance rate, is just abysmally low in the first place. But then once you get a case that's solved, once you get a case that's charged, then it gets into the court system and you have a DA's office, which is either afraid to go to trial or um, just reluctant to go to trial or they don't want to hold people accountable. And you get situations where the judge's hands end up getting tied. I've got a link to this story. If you follow me on Twitter, it's at Jeff Wagner 620. But if you wonder again why it is that people commit crimes in the city of Milwaukee, it's because they can, and they know that there's very little chance that they're going to get caught, and they know that even if they do get caught, there's very little chance that they are going to be held accountable to the full extent of their conduct. Another example of that. All right, we're just getting started on today's show. Don't go anywhere. 
We will have an update in a few minutes. If you're just tuning in, you want to avoid at this point in time I-94 westbound coming out of the city. Uh, a boom truck hit the overpass at 35th Street, and the freeway is completely closed at this point in time while they're clearing the uh, clearing the freeway. But also the, the thing that takes time is they're also, I'm sure, having to look to check whether or not there's any structural damage that was done to the overpass. We'll have an update for you in just a couple minutes, and we'll try to suggest alternate routes as well. So this, you, you know, if, if you want to just understand how out of control stuff is, it, here's just another story that was out there. This happened since we last spoke. The headline is two. Okay, well, here's the story as it appears on today's TMJ4. Um, a reckless driver evaded police before officers deployed stop sticks, forcing the suspect to crash along Port Washington Road in Glendale Friday morning. All right, so this happens at 11.40 a.m. last Friday near Port Washington and Silver Spring. That's that's Bayshore Town Center. That, that's where that is, an incredibly busy uh, North Shore intersection. A reckless driver evaded police before officers deployed stop sticks, forcing the suspect to crash along Port Washington Road in Glendale Friday morning. According to an email from the Glendale Police Department, officers report received a report of a reckless driver around 11.40 a.m. near Port Washington and Silver Spring. Officers found that vehicle in the Bayshore Mall parking structure. The driver of the vehicle tried to get away from police because that's what we do in, in Milwaukee. We run from the police. Officers deployed a stop stick tire shredding device along the road, forcing the suspect into a crash along Port Washington Road. Officers then took everyone in the car into custody. Police said that they were not aware of any injuries caused by the crash. Milwaukee police say the vehicle was wanted in connection to an armed robbery carjacking that occurred earlier in the day around 5 a.m. in the 5700 block of North 75th Street. Okay, so let's review the bidding here. You have a car which is... Stolen in an armed robbery carjacking about five o'clock in the morning. Shortly before noon, they find the car in the Bayshore parking lot. They go to, you know, arrest the people that are in there, presumably the same people who are involved in the carjacking, etc. The car takes off and ultimately they deploy stop sticks and, and they, they stop them. Okay. Well, Sarah, Jeff, why are we talking about this? Because it's, you know, just, just another day in Milwaukee County, another carjacking, another stolen car, another fleeing from the police. Here's the dazzling detail about this. Would you like to guess how old the driver of the car, which had been stolen in the carjacking was that was fleeing from the police? Imagine. Okay, let's let's think about that. Well, it's a carjacking, you know. So you've got you've got that violence that's going on here. It's the stolen car. It's somebody that's got the audacity to run from the cops. Oh, you know who this, this is? It's got to be a hardened criminal, thirty years old, maybe. Well, if you guessed it was thirty, you would be wrong. If you guessed that the driver was twenty-five, you would be wrong. Twenty, you would be wrong. Eighteen, wrong. Seventeen, wrong. Sixteen, wrong. Fifteen-year-old. It is a 15-year-old behind the wheel of this carjacked car who is running from police. And I think it's a better-than-even inference that the 15-year-old was the one who was involved in the carjacking. His passenger, 
gets even better. The passenger is a 14-year-old. So 1140 Friday morning, you've got these two kids, 15 and 14. The inference is they were involved in the carjacking. But beyond that, all you know is that they're in the car that was carjack- was the was taken in a carjacking, and they decide to flee from the cops. They're 15 and 14 years old, for goodness sakes. Criminal charges, the story says, will be referred to the Milwaukee County District Attorney's Office in the upcoming days. Well, what do you want to bet? What do you want to bet that they just decide to handle this in juvenile court or whatever so we never find it? Don't carjack another car there, young youngster. You know, um, you know, it's just, again, if you wonder why people commit crimes around here, it's because they can. There's no fear of consequences, and in the, re- in the relatively remote chance that they are, in fact, caught, they know there's going to be no consequences. And what does it say that you've got a 15-year-old and a 14-year-old that are out at 11 o'clock? Presumably, again, they're the ones that were involved in the carjacking, but let's put that aside. It's 1140 in the morning. They're in the Bayshore parking lot, you know, in a car that was stolen in a carjacking. I mean, we, we ask rhetorically, where are the parents? Where is the school system? Where are these kids supposed to be? And I guarantee you that it's not in this stolen car at 1140 on a Friday morning. Back with more in just a minute. We'll give you an update on what's going on in the roadways. So very glad to have you with us. Hey, I neglected to mention that in addition to listening to us over the radio, whether it's terrestrial radio or through the streaming services or on the podcast that a lot of people do, you can also watch us as we uh, go about our business of spoken word radio. You can do it. We've got our own YouTube channel. Just go to YouTube and then put in WTMJ and you can watch us live. A lot of people do that. In addition, you can go to WTMJ.com and just hit the, the stream live button and you can watch Watch live or listen live. And however you find us, we love to do it. It's one of the little parlor games that people play is to see, okay, what what are they wearing today? What do those people really look like? Oh, my gosh, that's what the guy looks like. So you can check it out. We've got cameras all throughout the studio as we broadcast from our downtown facility. Okay, the news, was it yesterday? Yesterday, two days ago. Um, and, and this, it actually occurred. For those of you who have not been following it, Joe Biden agreed to pay six well, billion dollars in ransom. And I understand there's some people who object to that term, but I think that that's, that's what this was, in order to bring back five Americans, in most cases dual citizens from Iran, who were being wrongfully held. So here, here is the deal. You have a variety of American citizens who in most, I think if not all cases, were also um, Iranian citizens who were really being held as political prisoners. They were apprehended and they were detained and they were imprisoned on, I think what we would all agree is bogus charges. And in one case, one of them has been there for for eight years. In order to get them freed, the deal was that the United States would have to agree to release five people that we were holding, five Iranians that we were holding in custody. A couple have been convicted of crimes. A couple were accused of crimes and were awaiting trial. So you you have a prisoner swap that's arranged. These five dual citizens who've been held for a number of years on what I think we would all agree is bogus charges in exchange for five Iranians. And unlike with the swap that we did with Russia, the, the five Iranians that were being held 
They're, they're being described as nonviolent criminals. It's not like we released the merchant of death, you know, like, like they did with the Russian deal. So you have five for five. Now, if it was that situation, you would say, okay, what, what's the big deal? But that's not what the real kicker was. In addition to having the prisoner exchange, the five people being wrongfully held, in my opinion, in Iran, in exchange for the five people that we were holding, what you also had is the U.S. government agreeing to unfreeze $6 billion in Iranian oil revenue that had been frozen because of sanctions. So this is, it is money that was to be paid to Iran, but because of international sanctions, it was held up. So we agreed to release our hold on this. So Iran will essentially have access to six B as in billion dollars. Now, the Biden administration would say, well, you know, one of the conditions that we put on this was that Iran has to use this $6 billion and they have to use it on on humanitarian purposes, for humanitarian purposes. But there's no, there's really no control over that. And as a matter of fact, Iranian officials are already out there saying, well, you know, this is money that belongs to us and, you know, we're going to pretty much do what we want with it. And once they get the money, there's really very little that we can do to, again, get it. There's nothing we can do to get the money back. It's just gone there. Now, they would argue that, well, if we can find and we can document that they're using this as, you know, to, again, support international terrorism, maybe we can, you know, refreeze the money. But nobody thinks that's going to happen. I'm looking at a quotation from the president of Iran who says, this money belongs to the Iranian people, the Iranian government. So the Islamic Republic of Iran will decide what to do with the money. So the Biden administration can say, well, it's only going to be humanitarian purposes. Nobody, I think, seriously believes that. So what you have here is a situation where despite the fact that the U.S. government maintains a policy of not paying ransom for the release of prisoners slash hostages, whatever you want to do, we are effectively paying ransom because this is, is this money that's coming from the, the coffers of the U.S. taxpayers? No, but it's money that Iran would not have otherwise received because of international sanctions that is now being freed up. So you say tomato, tomato I say tomato. To me, I, I, to, to look at it as anything other than ransom, $6 billion that you would have otherwise not received, regardless of whether it's unfrozen money or money that comes from the Treasury, it's still money that is being paid to you in exchange for releasing these prisoners, which raises the question of, you know, what what do we do now? I mean, is this, what about the next American hostages? Okay, now after paying $6 billion to Iran, how is Biden going to prevent future ransom grabs? And look, I, I appreciate getting these people back. I, I understand. And the reality was, unless we allow that $6 billion to go to Iran, they were probably going to hold these dual citizens for the length of their term or forever. I, I get it. They were being held as hostage. But is this the right thing to do? And do we set a precedent now that you can grab American citizens, you can hold them, and you know that in an effort to return them we are going to do pretty much whatever, 
some of these rogue nations want us to do. 855-616-1620. That's the old National Bank talk and text line. I, I Look, you can argue with me whether this was a ransom or not. I, it's money that they would not have otherwise received in exchange for the return of these unjustly held prisoners. Did Joe Biden do the right thing? Has he once again set a dangerous precedent for rogue nations to continue to grab U.S. citizens, or in this case, people with dual citizenship, and hold them knowing that now the United States will do whatever is required, even though it's not in the best interest of this country, to return people. 855-616-1620. Did Biden do the right thing? We discuss in just a moment. The Wall Street Journal has an editorial about this, and it's it's insulting to read in the Washington Post that the White House National Security Council official Brett McGurk says under terms to provide confidence, the funds will be spent only on a limited category of humanitarian trade, food, medicine and agricultural products. That's it. And, and the Wall Street Journal makes the excellent point that even if he's technically right now, there's, there's really as a practical matter. There's no control over that. But even if he's technically right, they argue that leaves the Tehran regime able to devote other friends, other funds that they would have spent on these goods and use them for terrorism by the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps. I mean, here here's the deal. You know, Biden has warned Americans don't travel to Iran. Okay, but but here's what we need to do. You need to say at the very least to say that, look, here's the deal. From this moment on, no ransom is going to be paid for your release. You know, if you decide that you want to go to Iran, for example, understand that you are on your own and understand that this type of stuff can happen because you cannot allow, I think, well, one of our textures makes the point that if you give a monster a cookie, he's going to want a glass of milk. I think that's a good analogy. 855-616-1620. Let's start with John in Burlington. John, you're on WTMJ. Hey, how you doing, Jeff? Hi, John. I'm uh, just going to say, I, I, there's a, there was a movie on the other night, and it said something about two snakes. One looks like a rattlesnake, one is a rattlesnake. You're best not to trust both, but I had told your screener, I says, on the devil's advocate, advocate side of this thing, if those people don't get any relief from that money, they've had protests over there that usually get shot down, but they could become larger and it come, could come back to bite the Iranian government. I'm not sure. Odds are it probably won't, but it could. So Yeah, no, th- I mean, again, th- you know, I, I just, I mean, the, the idea of, of public protests overturning the Iranian regime are kind of, I think, a lot less likely than, you know, odds of public protests against the war in Ukraine um, over top, you know, toppling over Putin. It, it just I, I just don't think it's going to happen as a practical matter. But to your point, again, the Wall Street Journal makes this even if somehow you could take that five as in, that, that six billion dollars and guarantee it was going to be used for humanitarian purposes, that then frees up another six billion dollars that maybe Iran had to use for providing food or whatever and they can use it to fund terrorism. And does anybody out there seriously think that that is not what they are going to do? And does anybody seriously think that this wasn't, I mean, that this wasn't paying ransom? Now, if if that's going to be the new policy of the government, 
Okay, fine, but let's understand this, and let's understand that we are now putting every American who travels abroad, particularly to one of these rogue countries, they are at risk. And we need to, at the very least, come out and say, we're not just advising you not to travel. We're telling you that if you travel, you do that at your own risk, and do not complain because we cannot continue releasing people like the merchant of death. We cannot continue paying $6 B as in billion dollars in ransom to a rogue nation. Sam in McHenry. Sam, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Good afternoon, Jeff. Thanks for having me on. Yes, sir. Well, just in our time, we saw two presidents handle Iran effectively without giving them a penny. First of all, you had Ronald Reagan, the hostages that Carter tried to get out. Right. Reagan got the message over to them. If you don't get them on a plane, when I'm get, by the time I'm getting sworn in, you're going to burn. And they got them on the plane and off they went. Now you can hit the fast-forward button, go to Donald Trump. When they were lobbing missiles over there in Iraq, Trump told them, knock it off because I got 52 targets I'm going to start working on. You know that number 52 gets their attention every time. Yep. You don't stop. I got 52 targets. I'm going to start hitting you tomorrow morning. And they stop. Not a penny. Yep. And another big missed opportunity with this whole uh, deal is you got that prisoner over in Russia that happens to be the American serviceman that, you know, was ignored while they were getting Brittany Griner out. Yep. Now, that guy, because Russia and uh, Iran are doing business together, they could have said, look, we want that guy out, too. But they, they let that one go. So, you know, this Biden, he's if he's not creating problems in the presence, he's setting us up for big problems down the road. And everybody predicted this before he got elected. And we're all watching it happen now in real time. Yeah, you know, Sam, thanks for the call. You know, it, it's and, and the administration's thing was, well, the, the alternative was that these people just stay in prison. Well, all right, not necessarily. I mean, maybe you're exactly right. Maybe if you had a president that was willing to take a more aggressive approach on this. And again, I have no problem with the prisoner swap. I have no problem with releasing, you know, people who are being held here. And again, you weren't releasing the merchant of death or anything like that. But it's the freeing up of the money that you know is going to be used for terrorist purposes down the line. Uh, Jeff, Biden's foreign policy destruction, Afghanistan abandoned, and the destruction of Afghans' hope for any future. Every month, Afghan women and children's lives are increasingly destroyed. Biden achieved throwing Afghanistan back into the Stone Age. Second, releasing the merchant of death to benefit Russia's destruction of Ukraine. Three, handing over $6 billion to the largest sponsor of state terrorism. These dollars will immediately lead to innocent loss of lives. I I think that is an inescapable conclusion that is out there. So, you know, people can decide on on their own. And I appreciate it. We wanted to get these Americans, again, they're dual citizens. We wanted to get them back. Okay, I, I understand that. But there's always a cost to this. And sometimes there are larger issues that are out there. And it's an unfortunate sort of thing. It's too bad that they went to Iran. It's unfortunate that they were grabbed. It is certainly unfortunate that they were wrongfully detained. But at some point in time, how much ransom, and that's what we've done, can you pay in order to bring people back? And what are going to be the consequences down the line? And I think they are going to be enormous on the level of what Iran's going to do with this money, And secondly, what other rogue nations will do moving forward when it comes to grabbing innocent Americans and holding them hostage, figuring that as long as Biden is in power, he knows that they will negotiate and they will cave. The U.S. will cave in. 
I'm Jeff Wagner. My advice is avoid 94 West at this point in time. We'll continue to give you updates as to when it's going to be open. But like I say, this was a boom truck that hit an, an overpass. And so it's not just a question of clearing up. It's not like just a collision where you got to get the cars out of traffic and sweep up. You also have to make sure that there's not structural damage to the overpass so that there's not a collapse. So that always takes a little bit of time. All right. It is the Milwaukee way. Remember when they first introduced the streetcar, the trolley, the hop, and the idea was, okay, we're going to get a certain ridership, and the hop is going to be at least somewhat self-sustaining. There was always going to need taxpayer dollars, but the idea was we're going to charge, we're going to charge people a buck to ride the hop. Well, early on, the proponents of the hop realized that if we charge anything, if we charge a quarter to ride the hop, no, I don't say nobody. Very few people are going to ride. So suddenly, this idea that it can generate its own money, um, that, that went out the window, and it continues to be quote-unquote free. Now, I say if you're watching us on our YouTube channel, I, it's free. I'm giving you the air quotation thing. It, it's free in the sense that the people in the city of Milwaukee are, are picking up the tab for the, the free riders. Because, again, as, as bad as the ridership is on the hop, they know if they even charged anything, it would plummet. Okay, so you've got that going on. So then you, you now have the Milwaukee County Bus Rapid Transit Line. And we've talked about this on a number of occasions. The, the quote-unquote high-speed bus line, which now takes up a lane of traffic and gets you from, if you ride it the whole way, gets you from the lakefront out to the medical college in about six minutes less than the regular bus service does. Now, this comes at, at the cost of, again, parking and lanes of travel and all those different things that are there. So, all right, went into effect, and they started running this in June. And remember what they said was, okay, well, here's the deal. We're going to, for the purpose of the summer, to try to introduce people to this and as kind of a loss leader to encourage people to to ride this, we're going to make the route free. All right, so we were going to do this. um, It was going to be for a couple months, like 90 days here, we're going to do this. Well, guess what? Guess what? They've now decided to make it, quote, unquote, free, which means these are costs that the people who, in this case, the Milwaukee County, has to pick up the tab. They've now said it's going to remain free until early 2024. They say that the pre-board fare equipment is not going to be ready to be installed in a timely fashion. And so the idea is we don't have the equipment there, so we're going to continue to provide this service for free. So once again, you know, what, whatever numbers come out about the number of people who are actually riding this, well, it, it's all the books are being cooked because you're not charging people anything for this. So it becomes, oh, let's have the novelty and let's ride the bus service that's out there. I mean, I seriously question whether or not they're ever going to start charging for this, just like they made the decision to never charge for the hop because they understood that, again, ridership would crater. Um, This is one of these other examples. This is the Milwaukee way. Let's say, okay, we're going to implement this service thing. We're going to charge people to use it. Oh, well, now we're kind of afraid that if we don't have this, um, nobody's going to ride it. So let's just continue to expect other bus riders and other taxpayers to end up subsidizing this. And as far as a planning purpose, how can you roll out these buses and not have some way of collecting fares? They started the bus service in June. They're now saying they can't collect fares until, what, at least January or February of 2024? 
mean, who runs this type of thing? Can you imagine running a private business like this? Don't answer that question. The answer is no. A lot of great stuff coming up in the two o'clock, in the one o'clock hour of the program, including the UAW and American Family Field. Those are two separate topics. Don't go anywhere. This is Jeff Wagner. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at the Avenue, it's the Jeff Wagner Show. Now, here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome back to the show. Greg Matzik, rocking the streaming. Lots of people tuning in to watch you do the news. Okay. You can, you can, you can watch us on our YouTube <laughs> channel. Absolutely. YouTube channel. And uh, uh, just put in WTMJ or go to the Watch Live thing on our 620 and you can just check this all out because we see the the current numbers a lot of people doing that okay now here is my one question and again i i now i admit that sometimes i do not understand all the intricacies of things but if i was driving a boom truck on the freeway isn't one of the things i would do is to figure out how high are the bridges and how high is the boom i, I mean it's just it, or is that just something unreasonable that people don't think of hey, jeff i find you to be a very logical and reasonable <laughs> man yes that is something that you would do and i think most most of those on the freeways right now would do right exactly i mean it, it, i mean i i understand it's sort of like you know some people you get in the pull into these parking garages and people have some of these big trucks and things like that and they're always they're very very clear i mean you need x amount of clearance whether it's 8 feet or, or whatever whatever the clearance thing is and then they have that little bar that tells you you know how far and whether your car fits and if you try to go in you're going to end up getting stuck now i would think but again, if you've got a boom truck, that's the first thing you want to figure out. How high are these bridges? And where where do I need to put the boom to make sure I don't, oh, smash into one? I kind of feel like the structure is going to win in most instances. Right. If you try and fit said boom truck, even though you're moving the boom right. truck, you're going to cause some sig- significant damage. And now look at everybody's day is ruined. Well, right. but <laughs> right, and, and, of course, the issue is, as we were talking about, it's not just like an ordinary collision where you, you get the boom truck off the road. But now that you've slammed into the bridge, the overpass, what they have to do is they have to get out structural engineers and stuff to determine whether or not you've done damage to the bridge which is going to cause like pieces of concrete to fall on the freeway or so i mean it's it's just more involved in getting the truck you know loose not to mention if you are the boom truck driver you've got to make a phone call to somebody <laughs> you might see about this or hear about it maybe you've heard it on wtmj but i'm gonna be a little late and here's what happened that right that might be the oh fudge moment is that what you're saying that's not a phone call you want to make right when you're and of course i just I mean, I assume you're moving at freeway speeds when this happens. So, I mean, I, I just I wonder what it's like to be driving a boom truck at, I don't know, 50, 60 miles an hour and then slam into the top of a bridge. It, right. There is that like Christmas story. Oh, fudge. Except you don't say fudge. That's not exactly. the word. I'm sure choice words were said. Interesting. We will continue to keep you updated. This happened about 930 in the morning. Um, the, the freeway has been closed for a couple hours now and we'll continue to keep you updated as to what the developments are but the bottom line is and i know a lot of you listen to us for traffic reports and updates um if you are heading westbound out of the city um find an alternative route at least till you get past 35th street and then you can get back out on the freeway but the freeway is closed at 35th street and my guess is it's going to be at least for a little while longer again while they try to determine the, the structural integrity of the the overpass so you can check that out okay i feel like my career is circling back we're we're going back to where we started 
when I first began hosting a talk radio show in this market, Samantha, do you know what one of the hot stories was? This is when I first started doing this 28 years ago. All right. One of the hot stories was the funding crisis over at the time Miller Park. And I, I will take you, I understand that for a lot of people, I, I you know, I, I'm very, very flattered. A number of you have listened to me for going on 30 years now. I appreciate that very much. I understand, I run into people all the time who are, you know, in their 20s and 30s who are regular listeners who grew up listening to me because their parents listen to me. Thank you. I appreciate all that. But it is interesting how what goes around comes around. Let me take you back to the mid-1990s. County Stadium was, well... County Stadium, if OSHA had ever gone in there, I, I had, you know, when I started WTMJ, which was 98, I had the ability to kind of go into the bowels of County Stadium a couple times, and I'm, I'm telling you, it was not a pretty sight. I was always convinced that if OSHA ever came in and, and saw what was going on, they would close it, it, it down. So we had the ongoing battle about, you know, are you going to build a new stadium? And at the time, you know, the brewers were saying, if you don't build a new stadium, we're we're going to, you know, we're there's at least a danger that we are going to leave. And I believe that that was a reality. So actually building Miller Park, it it, it really it, it worked out. The timing was right because that the thing that makes Miller Park now American Family Field so special is you've got the retractable roof. So you, you know that there's going to be a game any time and you can play games in the spring. You can play fans can be comfortable in the fall, but yet you can still open it up so you can enjoy the outdoors, you know, during the summer. So it, it's and, and the truth of the matter is, and it's why, like, they don't have retractable domes in Detroit or in Minnesota. It's because it, it quickly became cost prohibitive. So actually, the timing was perfect on American Family Field. The brewers are tenants, and this is an important thing to note. The brewers are not owners of the stadium. They are tenants. They pay rent, right? So they they pay rent, and then they also pay taxes. So the brewers say, okay, there needs to be improvements over the course of the next X number of years, if you want us to continue to stay, you need to continue to make these improvements because our lease deal says that, you know, this, this is going to continue to be state of the art. It's not unlike if you run Samantha's Carpets and you are, Samantha is leasing a carpet store on the east side. Well, okay, Samantha would say to her landlord, okay, here's the deal. I need you to make these improvements if you want me to stay. You, know, you wouldn't expect Samantha to invest money in a building that she does not own. That That's the landlord's responsibility. But, of course, as just going back again, cycling back to where we were almost three decades ago, you got to figure out where the money is going to come from. So there has been this ongoing battle. Yesterday, the proposal was floated that um, $600 million in state and local cash would be committed to renovations to keep American Family Field state-of-the-art over the next nearly 30 years. The Milwaukee Brewers, despite the fact that they are the tenant and not the owners, they would put up $100 million of their money in addition to the money that's going to come from the state and some local cash. Uh, 
in return for the $100 million that they're going to pony up, the brewers would also agree to extend their lease to 2050. So you'd get at least a guarantee of another 25 years, which would keep the brewers in Milwaukee for, well, again, two and a half decades. So this would be the commitment. The stadium is, of course, owned by the public. In addition, one of the things that they're talking about is, as, as part of these improvements, they want to winterize the stadium to allow for more year-round use. Now, in a, as a practical matter, I, I'm not sure how you can winterize it to have large concerts in November or December or January or February, but I leave that to other people. But the idea would be $600 million in public money. Where would the majority of that public money come from? Well, it wouldn't be a sales tax. What they would do is they would take the income tax that the performers, including the baseball players, pay when they are at American Family Field, and they would funnel that into the money to make the improvements. So I think people don't necessarily understand this, but when you pay you pay income tax, you pay state income tax in the area in, in where you earn that money. So if you have... I don't know, Manny Machado, who makes a ton of money and plays for the San Diego Padres, when he, if the Padres come to Milwaukee and he plays a four-game series here, well, his salary is prorated and, you know, per day, and, you know, he pays state taxes for the four days that he plays in Milwaukee. For the Brewers who play 81 games here, those individual Brewers, Kristen Yelich pays state income tax on the days that he plays games in Milwaukee, regardless of where he is a resident. So the idea would be we're going to take this money that the players are paying and we're going to use that to fund the improvements. Now, in, in all honesty, that's you, you are diverting money because the, the money that they pay in taxes would presumably go into the general revenue fund. So now you're going to use it to, to fund, the, again, the improvements. But this is not going to entail new taxpayer dollars. That is, there's not going to be a 0.5% sales tax or 0.5% sales tax, and it's a way of keeping the brewers here. Now, I understand the arguments. Matter of fact, there was a piece in the local newspaper today written by a liberal UWM professor who said, well, if, if the brewers are going to play, you know, at American Family Field, what they should do is give the public an ownership interest in the team which is just crazy. I mean, I, I guess if you're a socialist, you think that's the case. But, I mean, just like just like Samantha's rug shop isn't going to be giving an ownership interest to her landlord, um, that expecting the brewers to give an ownership interest to, uh, as a tenant, to the, the people that own the stadium, it, it's just crazy, and it's not going to happen. So let's tee this up. And I understand that there's a lot of passions. I understand there's the, well, you know, we shouldn't have, you know, billionaires and millionaires and the taxpayers shouldn't be involved in this. But the truth of the matter is American Family Field is owned by the public. The brewers are a tenant. Are the brewers within their rights to say, hey, you've got to make these different improvements to the infrastructure and stuff. And what we will do is we will commit to staying for another 25 years if you commit to do it. And you know what? We're going to contribute one-seventh of the cost. We're going to pony up $100 million ourselves as a public-private partner. 855-616-1620. The devil is in the details. But, you know, I think 
and I'm ready to, I, I still, I still have some of the psychic scars from the uh, Miller Park debate a number of years ago, but I, I think, I think this is a reasonable starting point for a deal. 855-616-1620. What do you think? We discuss in a moment. 855-616-1620, which is the old National Bank talk and text line. The, um, you know, the, the argument here is that, well, you know, it's, it's billionaires and it's millionaires. One of my texters says, I'll put the stadium up for sale. Okay. Who's going to buy? All right, who's going to buy the, the, the stadium? Um, 855-616-1620. All right, we have on line one, Rob Brooks, state representative from Sockville, who co-authored the legislation. Rob, Robert, how are you doing? I'm doing fine. Thank you very much. Uh, I have to congratulate you. You are one of the few reporters that have gotten the story straight <laughs> and actually reported the facts. You know, so well, it's amazing how many different versions of this bill are out there. You know, but there's only one bill, and but it's been reported wildly inaccurate. In you know, people saying we're going to double the taxes on players, to you name it. But I, I just wanted to say thank you for what you did get right, and, and touch on a couple of key points. Sure, go ahead. And that is that the, the VSG study, and I, the state had a study done, the Brewers had a study done that clearly point out that we have. Minimum four hundred and twenty-eight million to maybe six, seven hundred million dollars in needed repairs just through two thousand forty, which actually puts us in default under the terms of our contract because there's not enough revenue in the stadium board account currently today to finish us through the lease. Right, Rob. Let so me stop. You. Rob, let, hold it. Let me just yeah. stop you for just a minute because yeah. I think one of the things that some people don't understand. There's a lot of conversation about oh, they're going to spend it on a scoreboard and things like that. But the truth is, a lot of that money is needed for infrastructure repairs and things and infrastructure upgrades. So I, I know a lot of people. Oh, it's the, the, the we need a new scoreboard, but but it's right. But a lot of it is is just the, the basic mechanicals that you need to like for people who need to replace their furnaces or their air conditioners. It's stuff like that, too. Am I right? You are absolutely right. It's air handling systems, plumbing, electrical. We have a facility, and as you point, a very intricate facility that was built 22 years ago. It's no different than anybody's home, that as you get into that 20, 25, 30-year period, you're looking at replacing furnaces, hot water heaters, you know, roofs, windows. You know, some of that stuff has a 20-year life, some of it has a 30. We're not just talking scoreboards and aesthetics and you know, new right. restaurants. That is not what we're talking about. Right. Okay. So I'm sorry. I, so I interrupted you. I mean, the why do oh, you think? Right. So let, let, let's again go through some of the details. This is there, there's not going to be a tax increase, but the money that's going to fund at least the public portion, or at least the vast majority of the public portion, is going to come from tax revenue paid by the performers. Is, is that my, is that correct? You are absolutely correct. And what's different than if. Rockwell or Johnson Controls or Northwestern Mutual shuts down, a majority, not all, but a majority of those workers there will stay employed in the state of Wisconsin. If the brewers leave, we lose all of that income tax. The Cardinals, the Cubs, the Yankees, whoever, are not going to be coming to Wisconsin, and that is half of that income tax. You know, So it's an important thing to note that it's a different business model than anything else. It's different than even football or basketball. You know, so we really need to 
approach it differently and go, it, you know, and people push back saying we're repeating the same lines we did. It's cheaper to keep them with, mm-hmm. you know, the bucks. But we're estimating in a very conservative estimate of more than $600 million in income tax revenue being derived during the term of the new lease. And we're paying out less than $400 million from the state. So I, I don't know how the last time I went to school, 600 was still bigger than 400. Well, one of the things I, I also don't understand, Rob, is that, that okay, we people were on board. There was bipartisan support for doing for doing FISERV, and there you had contributions from the state and from the Bucks and from the city and all that. And, and yet, some of those players are are objecting to this. If if it was a good model for FISERV, I don't understand why this isn't a good model for American Family Field and the Brewers. Jeffy, it is. You know, and I think it'll come around and we'll get there, you know, but as you well know, it's been a, it's been a contentious, you know, year or so, or contentious couple of years since the Bucks deal. And, you know, we're dealing with impeachment and all kinds of other issues that are out there that I think have brought some bad blood and some distrust into the process that I don't think we would normally have because the governor clearly has a commitment to keeping the brewers. Most of my colleagues are committing to keeping the brewers if the numbers make sense. And that's exactly what this bill does. And it ensures, you know, a huge contribution from, as you put it, our tenant, the brewers. And it changes the makeup of the stadium board. So we're gonna bring in people that have expertise and professionalism to really run this facility the way it should have been run. You know, you're not, not saying anything overly negative about the current stadium board. It's just, you know, a lot of people were led to believe that there was ample money there. And it looks like if we pass this bill and transfer everything over, there may be only 10 to $15 million transferred, plus some outstanding treasury bills, not the 70-some million that we were led to believe that could get us through 2030. So there's a lot of misinformation out there. And I think once people really listen to the facts, They'll come around. We're talking to State Representative Robert Brooks, who's one of the, the authors of this bill. Rob, let me ask you one other thing. One of the, the issues that's coming up is the Milwaukee County and the city are, are balking at making any sort of contribution at all, at least, you know, initially. What's what, what, what money are they going to be expected to put up, and where is that going to come from? We are very flexible with that, and people have asked, you know, our earlier plans asked for $5 million a year, $135 million. We don't care if it comes from the city or the county. Um, in, in our bill, we're asking for $202 million because we don't know yet. And just like the governor's proposal said $290 million up front, well, $290 million, according to the Fiscal Bureau, is equivalent to $400 million over time. So if they're willing to come up with money up front or in a faster fashion, then we can lower that commitment from the 200 that we're projecting down to around 135 or less. But we need to know where that is, you know, and some of the county board members and city council members have put out memos and press releases saying, you know, absolutely not. Other people have said, well, we will if you reopen shared revenue. You know, our bill is clean as far as policy and only related to the brewers. Now, if they need some flexibility like we did with the bucks we're willing to listen you know i'm hoping this bill kind of prods all the interested parties to come to the table now rob a number of i'm getting a number of texts from people who are kind of asking this basic question who owns the stadium i mean the exact who actually does own the stadium 
So according to the current lease agreement, which will obviously draft a new one, about 66% roughly is owned by the state of Wisconsin. One third is owned by the brewers. How, you know, but they have no contractual obligation other than a lease payment and an annual $300,000 maintenance payment. That's all they're obligated to pay on an annual basis. So while they retain some of that ownership, you know, and then under the current lease agreement, if we were to close the stadium board and if there were money in that account still, it would go back to the five counties. I will tell you one of the things we negotiated with the brewers and one of our things in our proposal is there is more than enough money to fund us through 2050 and have money at the end of this thing where we have a 50-year-old building to tear it down or continue on without going back to the taxpayers. And the brewers throughout the negotiations have said we will forego any ownership interest at the end of the day if we terminate our lease and we'll forego any money that's left in that account. So that's another concession the brewers have made along the way. You know, it would be great if the brewers owned it and paid their own way, but that is not the way major league baseball no. facilities are financed throughout the county or state. Well, or well, state, well, country. well, exactly. And, and again, the brewers at the end of the day are, are largely, they are tenants. And I guess I just keep coming back to the basic premise that, you know, you I think it's unreasonable for tenants to expect the, the to expect the landlords to give them an ownership interest or whatever in making improvements to a building that you really don't own. And I guess I can't get past that that basic thing. If you want the tenant to stay, you have to continue to make improvements, especially when the tenant might have options as to where they're going to choose to go, like Nashville or whatever. Right, and and I want to be clear with the public to think that we didn't ask for clawback provisions or try and negotiate those things, we clearly did. But there is no other baseball park that I know of that has those provisions. So very tough to negotiate when we're not in the strength position. We have a contract through 2030 that we don't have adequate funding to meet our lease obligations. The brewers have opportunities to go elsewhere. The ownership group has opportunities to go elsewhere. And you don't have to be an economist to know that if the brewers leave Milwaukee and go to a Nashville or a much larger city, the value of the team is going to jump exponentially. Mm-hmm. So I really have to applaud the brewers for their commitment to Milwaukee to stay through 2050. And I'm hopeful that the city and the county have enough foresight to say that if the brewers stay through 2050, that whole area will start to develop because now there's a long-term commitment to the brewers staying. So I think you'll see a lot of development, the same as we've seen down, you know, around the Bucks Arena. Yep. Hi, State, State Representative Rob Brooks, thanks so much for joining us. I appreciate your input. Oh, thank you. Uh, well, right, and, and I guess and the other thing is from a perspective of value, if the Brewers were to leave in, in 2030, all right, so then then you've got this huge investment that the public's made in American Family Field. What is the, what is the value of American Family Field if you – don't have a professional baseball team that, that's playing there. What, what are we going to do with it? Are, are you going to have a, a handful of concerts during the summer? Sure, I, I, I get that. That That's fine. But the value of the public's investment just plunges. Look, I understand this is difficult. And like I say, I, I was around... I was around when we were having the Miller Park debate. I still got the psychic scars, and I understand it's a long way to get there from where we are now, but I think this is a very, very good starting point. And when you hear that the brewers are willing to pony up $100 million them- themselves, I-, I think that shows that they're trying in good faith to figure out a way to make this work. Back with more in just a minute. This is Jeff Wagner. 
I am genuinely curious about your reaction to this latest story. The United States Senate has a history or a reputation, at least at one point in time, of being the greatest deliberative body in in the world. U.S. senators, two from each state, are elected to six-year terms. Um, Very, 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 very powerful entity and make big decisions about that. For, well, pretty much forever, there has been an informal dress code for senators, men and women. And the rule was that um, the expectation was that males, men, U.S. senators, on the floor of the Senate would wear either a suit or a, a coat and tie. And for women, it w- was business attire, dresses or pantsuits or things of the like. Uh, that was changed over the weekend when the um, leader of the Senate, Chuck Schumer, sent out a rule saying, okay, there's no, there, the, there's no dress code that applies anymore. It's pretty much wear what you want. Now, that only applies to senators. If you are anybody else other than one of the 100 U.S. senators and you go onto the floor of the Senate, you have to comply with the dress code. Coats, ties, suits for men, business attire for women. So this, if you're a visitor, if you're an employee, whatever, and you go onto the Senate floor, you have to comply with the dress code. But senators... Or in this new rule, there, there's not going to be a dress code. Now, why why are they doing this? Well, essentially, they're doing this because of the new senator from Pennsylvania, John Fetterman, who refuses to dress in any fashion other than he's going to the gym. This is the guy that shows up in jogging pants and you know shorts and hoodies, right? This, this is this is that guy, and he has since being elected has refused to change that. So what's been happening is he doesn't go on the Senate floor as a general rule. A lot of times he'll hang out in the cloakroom and, you know, and has cast his vote from the cloakroom. So this is really the, the Fetterman rule that they're now saying, okay, no more dress codes. Don't worry. If you want to come to the floor of the United States Senate um, dressed effectively like you're going to the Wisconsin Athletic Club to, you know, to, to work out, it's, it's okay. There's one other senator, uh, Christine Cinema from Arizona, who's um, had, had some sort of creative choices of clothing as well. But this is basically it's Fetterman, the guy who just just doesn't wear coats and ties, and he shows up in hoodies and he shows up in shorts. Now a lot of people are unhappy about this. We have become a more casual society. There, there's no question about it. And you have like casual Fridays at a lot of workplaces, but but even. Most of the places, or at least many of the places that have casual Fridays, it's still like business attire that, that's that's required in many businesses. This now, the United States Senate has now said, okay, forget the coat and tie, forget the suits, forget the business attire for women, anything goes. Susan Collins, the Republican from uh, from Maine, says, so I, I can now wear a bikini? Not that I'm going to wear a bikini to the floor, but, but that that's okay? And the answer is pretty much, yeah, it, that, that's okay. Whatever feels good, do it. Our number is 855-616-1620. That is the Old National Bank talk and text line. Now, I understand there's all sorts of big issues that are out there. I, I, I get it. But this idea that we're now largely to, I guess, accommodate just one guy, but we're now going to take arguably the greatest deliberative body in the world, and we're going to say, okay, no dress code at all. Just, again, roll out of bed, 
come on to the, the Senate floor, argue these things. Is that a good idea or a bad idea? And, and what what does it make America look like if you've got people that decide, oh, okay, we're not, we don't think enough about the institution to, I don't know, even make an attempt to kind of uh, look like we care? Or are dress codes completely and totally outmoded? Do they serve no purpose at all? And if you don't need to wear, you don't need to wear a coat and tie on casual Friday at the office, who cares if you show up in gym shorts and a hoodie and tennis shoes? For, I don't know, debates about the budget or foreign policy or whatever. 855-616-1620. We discuss in a moment. Well, not in the U.S. Senate anymore. Chuck Schumer has just said we're going to do away with any dress codes that we have for U.S. Senators. Now, if you are a visitor or an employee, not a senator, and you come onto the Senate floor, you need to have either for men a coat and a tie or a suit. Women, you need business attire. They've now said, oh, we're, we're going to no more dress code for members of the U.S. Senate. And this is really for John Fetterman. So you don't have to worry about wearing a suit. Come on to the Senate floor, argue the important issues of the day, dressed in a hoodie and shorts and looking like you're getting ready to go work out. 855-616-1620. Look, I understand. I, I understand that there's the, the bigger issues that are out there. But to me, there's just... I think if you are going to occupy a position like this, you you owe it to the dignity of the office to dress like you give a you-know-what. 855-616-1620. Let's start with Chris in Greenfield. Hi, Chris. You're on WTMJ. Yes, um, I will tell you, dignity is everything. And the way you look is the way you're going to act. Professional, I've been trained. I worked in a bank. We had to dress professional. You act like you dress. I can't even imagine with the way they've been acting currently what's going to happen when they start going casual. <laughs> well, it's just, I mean, it's clear respect for the institution. You know, when I was practicing law, you know, you, you go to court, you're having a jury trial or whatever, the, the, the institution you work for and the court system, the jury, you, you look like a professional, all right? Now, there's different ways of doing that, so maybe it's business casual aside from a full suit. But but don't you show some respect to the institution um, and, and, again, look like you care? And that's why, I mean, it would never have occurred to me to go to court dressed in, in a hoodie and in, you know, sweatpants. You just don't do that. And why should the U.S. Senate say it's okay? Yes, how is that going to look to other countries? I can't believe it. Uh, no, thank, thanks for the call. No, there, there's no question about it. Uh, Jack in Boston. Jack, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Yeah, hi, Jeff. My uh, thought on this is there's got to be some happy medium. Sure. There's got to be, uh, you know, it doesn't have to be uh, a suit, but, uh, you know, maybe khakis and a nice uh, sports shirt of some sort. Business but casual. I'm more concerned of what's, yes, and I'm concerned more about what is brought to the table rather than how you dress. I mean, you can... You can take, uh, you know, a, a pretty nasty person, make them look good, and uh, sure. brings nothing to the table, and that doesn't that sure. doesn't carry any weight. But I do believe that there should be a level of uh, something in between for decorum 
Right. Uh, I mean, I, uh, yeah, I that, think there should be it. respect. Yeah, no, thanks for calling. That, that's a good word. Uh, a minimum level of decorum for the institution and the position you hold, as opposed to just constantly dumbing this down. Oh, the guy doesn't want to dress, you know, wants to look like a slob. Yeah, he looks like a slob. We all look like slobs from time to time. I understand that. But you don't necessarily look like a slob when you're showing up at work. I mean, think about this. I don't care. Let, let's say, you know, you're you're working in sales, all right, for many, many companies. You, you come to work dressed like a slob in the hoodie and the shorts, and my guess is, I mean, again, depending on what the business is you're selling for, but my guess is your boss is going to say, you know, it's it's one thing if you want to dress like that if you're taking a client out to, you know, a pickleball game or something like that. But if you're taking, you're going to go meet a client, you have to at least have some sort of professionalism, um, you know, don't you? Let's talk to Chris in Elkhorn. Chris, you're on WTMJ. Uh, thanks, Jeff, for taking my call. Sure. You know, the first thing I thought of, the first thing, was Colin Kaepernick, and and it's the same thing with respect. You know, he's kneeling for the flag. He's doing whatever. My point is, it's not a point of, gee, I can do this because we live in a free country. It's a point of giving that respect, and these people need to give that respect. Yeah. They are they're employees of us, okay? Yeah. And sometimes that's forgotten so much. They think they can just do whatever they want, and, and what happens is, this kind of stuff. I mean, there's just no respect. Yeah, and that, that's it. That's no, all I needed to say. No, no, no thanks for calling. No, you're I mean, you're right. See, look, and, he, and here's the thing. I mean, all, businesses have different dress codes. Okay, if if you watch us on YouTube right now, I mean, I'm, I'm in a sports shirt and I've got one of my pullovers and I'm I'm wearing blue jeans and stuff. Okay, well that's that that's fine for you know what I'm doing now. But at the same time, if you had if you had invited me out, for example, to I was doing an event with listeners with a client a week ago Tuesday. Well, I, I mean, there I had a sport coat on and I had a pair of dress slacks. It was just respect for what was going on. If I was to go into court tomorrow, I would pull out one of my lawyer suits and do that. It's just it, it depends on particular circumstances. But I'm sorry. And I understand it's not the biggest issue in the world. I understand there's all these things going around, but I don't think it's too much to expect if you are one of the hundred people who are privileged to serve in the United States Senate, I don't think it's too much to expect the rules to say that you're not going to look like a complete and total slob. And it's these dumbing down these little things that I think contributes to, I don't know, the way maybe people view the the, the U.S. Senate, maybe the, people, the way the people view the this country. Just saying. 855-616-1620. Tell you what, we're going to move on. A lot of great stuff coming up after the top of the hour news, and we'll get you an update about what's going on on the freeways. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at the Avenue, it's the Jeff Wagner Show. Now, here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome back to the show. Yeah, the good news is the uh, mess on I-43 westbound has been cleared up, so that's just in time, I guess, for... But hopefully it'll continue that way as people get ready to go home. Sandy Max, when was the last time you wrote a check? <laughs> it wasn't that long ago because my <laughs> hairstylist takes a check, so that's usually who I write my okay my checks out to. How, all right, how many checks would you say that you have physically written, say, in the last month? That's zero. 
I haven't, I haven't gotten my hair done yet. Okay. Oh, I, we, well, for people who are watching us <laughs> on the U- on our YouTube channel, you would have never Do known I look that. Okay? Yeah. You, you look a- absolutely, and you. Un- Bless you. Uh, we, we were talking about the Senate dress code that they've now done away with, so it's apparently okay to show up looking like a complete slob, like you're heading to your workout. You would never do that. You yeah. would, you know, right? Take you, some pride. Exactly. I mean, show up, but okay. But to the point of checks, you when when you pay for transactions. How do you pay for them mostly? Debit card, credit card, cash? How do you do that? I am mostly a credit card person. I've become okay. so plastic, it's kind of bizarre. Okay, but the idea of actually sitting down and writing one of those paper checks, it's something you do it's not It's unusual. Yeah. yeah, it's unusual. It's either, like I said, to my hairstylist or something more official, like your license plate registration. But even that's like, because if you, you can, can avoid the 3%... Uh, you know, charge yeah. on the credit yeah. card, but yeah. So for the most part, I've gone with convenience and plastic, right? Or maybe charity. You know, I mean, when I make sure. I, a lot of times, that I'll I'll do that. But okay, but I read. How raised, about you? Um, more, but but significantly less than I I used to. I mean, I still I still write checks, but I would say less than ten a month. And you know, in the past, I mean, I used to I I, I used to write a lot more than that. But I I write. Fewer, but I mean, I'm, I'm older than you are. So, and, and that is one of the things because this is what I'm leading into. Um, paper checks, they estimate that it, they're featured in only about 4% of transactions. That the vast majority of transactions that Americans conduct, it's credit cards, it's debit cards, and then, then there's cash, and then there's checks. People just, the, the idea of people like standing at the grocery store and writing out a check for $63.18, they just don't do it anymore. <laughs> and standing behind that person. I wonder, though, in that study, if it's 4% checks, how many people are using their phone and Apple Pay and those even more electronic ways? Well, could, well this this is 4%. This is because they do a count of the checks that are generated at the Federal Reserve. So this is actually mm-hmm. physical checks that are out there. Well, it's it's interesting because a couple of months we, we did a related topic to what I'm going to talk about now. But um, I was talking to some of our teammates who are in their early 20s. Yeah. And I was just taking this kind of informal survey. One of them did not know how to write a check. I, I, I Seriously, it didn't, didn't, had never done it and did not know, you know, how to, to do it. Said I wouldn't have known how to do it. Um, a couple of my other, of our other teammates yeah. said, well, we know how to do it, but we've never done it. Because, and I said, well, how do you... You know, how do you deal with this? I said, what about places that don't take credit cards or debit cards? And it's Venmo. You know, that, that's mm-hmm. it. It was like, uh, they, they don't, nobody carries cash anymore. Yeah. And nobody writes the, these paper checks. It's very, very ethereal. It's very electronic between even, even I use pay, I use PayPal more than I use checks. And that's okay. saying a lot because I'm a very slow adapter. Right. It yeah. took me a long time to go, do I really want to pay the water bill online? I don't know. I'd rather just drop off the check. Right. Well, you said it's funny with the water bill. I, a lot of this stuff, I'm just on the auto pay thing because I just didn't want to have to, I didn't have to worry about it. So they just, and and especially bouncing back and forth between here and Florida from time to time during the winter. It's like, I just don't, I don't want to worry about missing something. Right. So here, just. Just take it Coming out. Coming home to no water, they right, shut right. it off. Yes, I would. Uh, <laughs> right, they, they they shut it off because yes, Jeff was a deadbeat. No, okay, all right. So that's good. One, once a month, I, I bring this up um, because I, again, the Washington Post has this this big story on on checks that kind of quantifies what I've been thinking. And so here's the deal: um, two thousand, so twenty two years ago, twenty three years ago, six out of every ten non cash purchases. Gifts and paid bills, 60% were handled with checks. A mere two decades later, 
just one in 20 are. So for every 20 transactions, only one is handled by a, a check. Now, if you look at, and this is a fascinating story in the Washington Post, because again, they, they break this down. Where do we still use checks? Uh, first of all, it is a generational thing. Um, if you are of retirement age, um, the, let's see, three quarters of retirement age Americans still use checks. Fewer compared to fewer than a tenth of college age, um, comrades. So it, it, it is a, a generational thing. There's no question about it. Where do we use checks? And I'm looking at this. Um, the most common place that people write checks are contractors. They say for, you know, and which I kind of make sense. You're having a roof put onto your house. You're not going to put it on a credit card or debit card. Charity, government paying your taxes, you know, writing that check. And after that, it kind of drops off precipitously um, as far as people writing checks, which goes to indicate that this whole idea of checks is pretty much, um, if this trend continues, it's it's pretty much going to be gone over the course of, you know, the, the next 10 years or so. Our number is 855-616-1620. That is the old National Bank talk and text line. I use and write lots, lots fewer checks than I did even like five years ago. I mean, I, I use the, the electronic bill pay. It's just more convenient. Um, I, you don't you don't miss the things, um, whether it's electronic commute, uh, bill pay or the automatic drafts for like the utility bills or things like that. And most of the stuff can be conducted electronically. But at the same time, I, I still do write the occasional check, particularly if you're writing uh, most commonly, if you've got to make a payment to the IRS or the State Department of Revenue, like an estimated tax thing or that. But even for like property tax payments, uh, property tax payments, depending on how it's set up. Um, yeah, I do that. Do you find yourself writing fewer or maybe even no checks now? 855-616-1620. It appears that just like people reading hard copies of the newspapers, this is a generational thing. And it may very well be five or 10 years from now, the idea of those paper checks are going to have been have gone the way of a dinosaur. 855-616-1620. You write you still write checks. And for what? We discuss in a moment. So, three quarters of retirement age Americans still use checks, but my guess is um people in that age category write a lot fewer checks than they used to. Fewer than one tenth of people who are in college write write checks. And again, that was kind of borne out when I was talking to some of my younger teammates here. Anybody write checks? No. What is a check? What? And seriously, well, we know what the checks are, but we don't have them. We, we just don't use them. We use Venmo. We use debit cards. We use credit cards. And of course, nobody pays cash for things anymore either. Okay. Are five or 10 years from now, are, are we still going to write checks for anything? Paula in Watertown. Paula, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Okay, are you a check writer still? Well, the reason that I still have a checking account, basically, is because my daughter and her husband don't have checkbooks, but my granddaughter, their child, is in a dance team. And when they go around and do fundraisers for this dance team, they collect cash from people or get Venmo transactions from people. 
but that has to be submitted to the dance team on a check, and they don't have checkbooks. So that's the main reason I keep my checking account is for my granddaughter's fundraiser. Okay, so other than other than that, do you mean do you write do you typically write checks in your regular life for utility bills or things like that? Just my property tax. Yeah. No, I, I no, th- thanks for the call. I, I mean, I think Paula, you're that's what one of our texters says, Jeff, I usually write two checks a month for our cleaning lady. Other than that, it's like you mentioned, once a year tax payments for property and income taxes, and after that, that's that's just about it. Now, I like I say I write a few more than that. Um a lot of times you know, when I'm making charitable donations, just to make sure you've got the record, I'll, I'll write a, a check. But, you know, some of those I end up putting on the credit card as well. Aretha in Waukesha, you're in WTMJ. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. All right. Are checks going to be around five years from now? Um, You know, I think they are. And this is why. I worked for a company that when we started a product called Pop Money, that was 2010. Um, we made the cutest video with the children in it, and they were all sitting around talking about what's a checkbook, what's a telephone. They had the rotary-style right. phones in there, and they had the CDs and right. all these things that these kids were like. Right. It was adorable. And we thought then the checks were going to be gone in five or ten years. So I think they're still going to be checked probably longer than you think. Um, but, yeah, I... I maybe write three a year, if if that. Yeah, if that. No, thanks. thanks. There's, there's no question. I mean, I can, and, and it's just, it, it's, well, one of our texters says, I'm 72. I have two checking accounts. I haven't had paper checks for either in more than 10 years. Jeff, I only use checks when giving a gift for spe- for special occasions. That way I know it was received. Last time I gave cash, I never received a thank you. I needed to call them to make sure they received it. Jeff, I write checks for the monthly cable bill so I can watch the increases in the credit card so I can verify the charges. Um, I asked a friend of mine at the gym about their cable bill. They said they had no idea what they pay because it's an auto pay. Um, yes, Jeff, my city and dentist hit you hard if you pay by credit card. Yeah, one of the, um, well, I mean, I, what I typically do for like medical providers, like, like the dentist and all, um, I've got an HSA account and I, I use the, I use that debit card, but I have been known, that's right. I would, I would write checks to my dentist. I think that's it. Jeff, I'm a 64 year old retiree. I only write checks for birthdays or weddings and for contractors. Everything else I end up paying online. Jeff, I write fewer checks now compared to past years, and if they go away, I will miss writing them. Why? It's because it's the only chance I have now to write in cursive. I was speaking to somebody the other day who was telling me that they, this is a grown-up, younger person, who they do not how to write, they do not know how to write in cursive because their school did not teach that. It is clearly... It is clearly a lost art. Jeff, I use my uh, credit card for just about, you know, everything with this. Um, I'll probably use my credit card when I hit Oktoberfest this weekend. I used to use only cash at bars. Well, I, I still use cash at bars, but the, the, the notion of, I don't know, standing in a supermarket, thankfully, my lovely and charming wife does almost all of the shopping in our house, which is, which is good. But I mean, I can remember those days where you'd be standing at the supermarket and you'd be in the checkout line and you're waiting and waiting and waiting. And then the lady's got 
Okay, I don't mean to be sexist. The lady, the man, whatever, got like 35 items, and they ring them all up. And then, and only then, when the cashier says, okay, it's going to be $112, then and only then does the realization dawn that I'm going to write a check for this, and so I've got to start filling out the check. So you reach into the pocket or the purse or whatever, and then it's only after you've been given the bill that somebody pulls it out. And, okay, I'm making this out to Metro Mart, and it's kind of like you want to say, okay, you knew you were going to have to pay for this. Could you have at least filled out the a lot of the check beforehand? But um, so yes, I understand that that was um, frustrating. Jeff, I write an above average amount of checks. I'll write it to the church we attend and to my cleaning lady monthly. When I first started my adult life, I wrote about a dozen a month, and it wasn't to the church or the cleaning lady. Um, yeah, there's no question about it. Jeff, I wrote two checks last week for my niece's birthdays. Otherwise, it's property tax, income tax, and occasionally for something else. Um, yeah, that's um, there, there's no question about that. Right, and these are like writing checks. Now, I, I mean, I have... There are places that have access, you know, you've agreed to, just like you have direct deposit, you've agreed to direct withdrawals and things like that. So I'm not saying a checking account is going to go away. I'm just saying that the the old style of where you used to sit down every month and you'd have the bills, like I can remember my dad or my mom sitting there and you'd have all the bills stacked up and you'd write check after check and then you'd put stamps on them and then you would send them out. Those days are, are gone. And if you have any doubt of that, just look at these numbers one out of every ten college age people say that they have they have they have used checks only four to five percent of all transactions one out of every twenty that are conducted in the United States are conducted with checks that tells you i don't know if you're somebody that's like makes a living running a check processing company or something tells you you want to be starting to think about branching into something more diversified back with more in just a minute this is jeff wagner w t m j As long as we're talking about traditions and things that are like going away, there I, I admit I was surprised. Story over the weekend in the New York Times. You know, we were talking in the last segment about checks and how people don't do write checks anymore. It was a story about women who, when they get married, take their husband's last name. All right. So the Pew Research just did this big study. Samantha, would you like to guess what percentage? of women, when they marry, make the decision to take their husband's last name. Got a guess for me? 75%. 75%. Look at the big brain on Samantha. Absolutely. Well, it's actually just a little bit higher. I I guess I was sort of surprised by this. The bridal tradition of taking a husband's last name um, among women in opposite sex marriages in the U.S., four in five changed their names, according to a new survey by the Pew Research Center. That would be 80%. 14 percent kept their last names. The youngest women were most likely to have done so. A quarter of respondents who were 18 to 34 kept their names. But still, um, you've got so, OK, you've got 80 percent changed their names. 14 percent kept their last names. Five percent of couples uh, used the hyphenated name. And then about one percent did less than one percent said they did something different, like creating a um like creating a new last name. So, that, I mean, that's, I, and I guess I found that interesting and somewhat surprising because I would have thought that it would have been more. Now, um, my late wife, we got married. She was, 
practicing law. She kept her her own last name, and so that, that was that was fine. Whatever whatever happened. Now Fran took my name after we got married. We've got matter of fact, our anniversary is coming up a week from uh, it'll be six years a week from Friday. So Sam got to remind me that's the that's the date there. But she ended up taking my name, and you know either. You know, either way, I mean, it didn't it didn't matter to me one way or the other, whatever people were comfortable with. But I guess I would have anticipated I was a little bit surprised by this because I thought the numbers I candidly thought the numbers would have been higher with um, women making the decision not to take their their husband's name. But that um, that is a tradition which appears to be, you know, continuing to go strong. The women who keep their names are likely to be older when they marry and to have established careers and higher incomes. They have invested in making their name professionally. That's what somebody from Harvard says, you know, in this. And um, I, I guess that, that can kind of, you know, I mean, it kind of makes sense to me. But I guess it is interesting that when we talk about that's been a theme of the last hour of the program. You know, traditions like the Senate does away with its dress code now to allow people to wear hoodies and, and gym shorts onto the Senate floor or, you know, people stop writing checks. I do think it's kind of interesting that this one tradition where that would be women taking their, their names. And I'm not judging this one way or other. That That's something for, you know, every every, you know, bride to decide and, you know, every couple to decide what they're comfortable with. That that's their own business. And I certainly wouldn't begin to tell people. And like I said, I've been I've been in both situations there. But it is interesting to me that that is a con- tradition that continues with, you know, large chunks of women making the decision to again take their husband's last name. All right. When we come back, what's going on with GM, with Ford, with Stellantis, and with the UAW. Stick around. Don't go anywhere. Jeff Wagner is back right after this. At LAK Group, their leadership development programs are based on six leadership attributes core to developing successful, agile leaders. They even wrote a book about it called Leadership on Purpose. Investing in leadership development can pay huge dividends and lead to long-term success. LAK Group's programs get results and are tailored for high-value, high-performing individuals. Learn more about the leadership development programs at LAK Group. Visit transformingcareers.com. LAK Group. Discover your human advantage. St. Vincent of Paul Thrift Stores has once again been voted the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel's Best in Thrift. So to all our loyal customers who voted for us, thank you. And to all who haven't been here yet, we know we have a treasure or two that will intrigue you. And at thrift store prices, you know you're going to get a great deal. And at the same time, you'll be helping us help others. St. Vincent of Paul Thrift Stores on Highway 100 in Layton in Greenfield and 23rd in Lincoln in Milwaukee. Ooh, you're going to love it, St. Vincent Paul. I'm Randy from All Right Home and Remodeling. You've likely seen your property value increase significantly in the past few years. If you're looking to leverage your home's equity with a HELOC, especially if you have a plan to stay in your home for your enjoyment, you may want to beautify your home's exterior. The ROI on new siding, roofing, and veneer can be some of the highest of all remodeling projects. Plus, there's great tax incentives, too. Learn more at allritemodeling.com. At Annex Wealth Management, we believe every portfolio tells a story. After all, we've analyzed thousands. Some reflect diligence and fortitude. 
others a mishmash of overlapping investments. When Annex reviews your portfolio, we spot what works, what might not, and then provide unbiased suggestions free from sales commissions. Every portfolio tells a story. Let's work on yours. Investment, retirement, tax, and estate planning. As a fee-only fiduciary, that's our story. Head to AnnexWealth.com. Welcome back to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. Very glad to have you with us. Boy, a lot of people checking us out on YouTube today. You can go to YouTube, put in WTMJ. We've got our own channel there. However you find us, we very, very much appreciate it. Okay, here is my question. Is this going to end anytime soon, and who is going to be the winner? This is day five of the UAW strike. Now, the United Auto Workers, who represent uh, unionized employees, it's a GM, it's at Ford and it's Stellantis, which is like the Chrysler Jeep, um, you know, Fiat company. Okay. Those, those are the three companies that the UAW, that have UAW employees. Um, the va- other companies, whether it's Toyota or Honda or Nissan or other companies that make cars in the United States, they by and large are not unionized. So the UAW, um, they have gone out on strike. Now what they're doing is they are not all out on strike at once. There's like 146,000 uh, UAW members. They're not all going out on strike, but they're targeting certain plants. Um, and I think there's about 13,000 or so that are on strike, and they're going out on strike systematically with an effort. The idea is to create as much disruption as they possibly can. So it's these unannounced, targeted sort of strikes to try to hurt the auto companies as much as they can. The union leaders want a 40% pay increase over the course of the next four years. They want cost of living raises on top of that. They want a 32-hour work week, but 40 hours of pay. And they want a number of other things, too, as far as job guarantees and things of the like. Uh, Stellantis offered a 21% pay increase over four years and the UAW president, his name is Sean Fain, rejected that and said, you know, he just he sneered at it. So that that's, you know, not even close. One of the questions that, of course, you know, they asked him, I was watching this. This was on uh, Face the Nation the other day. They said, well, OK, how how are you going to, you know, if you get the these massive increases in labor costs, how are you going to make the case to Detroit to okay, in, invest in, you know, uh, UAW shops rather than, than move like electric car pr- production more to a number of southern states or right-to-work states, et cetera. And the guy just didn't have a very good answer to it. To give you a perspective, the median worker at Tesla, now this includes Tesla's overseas workers. Um, the median worker at Tesla earned $34,000 last year in total compensation. GM, the number is 80000 um, Ford, it's, uh, 74,600. Stellantis said its average workers earned $68,600. But again, these U.S. workers make more. This is factoring in, you know, the, the cost of all workers across the country. 
Um, Ford reported a $1.2 B as in billion dollar cost last year for U.S. worker retirement benefits. Um, Ford, as it was going bankrupt a number of years ago, scrapped its defined benefit pension plan um, for new workers. So they've got that two-tier sort of thing. The union wants that to be restored. What Ford says is that if we did everything the union wanted, our average pay would be nearly $300,000 for a four-day work week. And the owners of the people that run Ford said, yeah, this is, this is, the company will be bankrupt in three or four years. Right now, the union appears to be kind of dug in saying, okay, this is what we want. And, you know, we're going to continue. This is look at the, look at the money that the CEOs make. And it's time for the company to take this money and take the profits that they made. And it's time to give it back to the workers. Our number 855-616-1620. That is the old national bank talk and text line. How does this end? And can the big three automakers in this case, can they give the union even close to what it wants? and still expect to be competitive with all the other car companies and car manufacturers that are out there. And put another way, you know, if labor costs go up X percent, are you willing to pay, I don't know, five, $6,000 more for, let's say, a Ford Escape, then you would be pick another comparable CUV, whether it's the Toyota RAV4 or the, you know, the Honda CRV. Just to give you an example, are you willing to pay several thousand dollars more for essentially the, the same sort of car, but because Ford is paying increased labor costs? It, it, does the union have to be careful about not cutting its own throat? 855-616-1620. We discuss in a moment. One of our texts said, well, why, why compare Tesla with this? And and the reason you compare Tesla with this is because the, the government, the Biden administration, is forcing particular, is forcing automobile companies into the, the electric car field, right? That's one of the things that the UA, that's one of the things that like Ford and GM are saying, we're expected to come up with B as in billions of dollars to try to generate more electric vehicles, whether consumers want them or not. So it is a very, very fair comparison to say, okay, well, okay, the UAW, this is how much these workers are getting. Compare it to, you know, what the electric car manufacturers are. And of course, one of the things the UAW is concerned about legitimately is when you make these electric cars like Joe Biden wants, it's many fewer parts. I mean, you don't have people that are making catalytic converters, for example. A lot of the component parts, you don't find them on electric vehicles. So a lot of the, the different plants that make the stuff that goes into the internal combustion cars, they're not there anymore. But comparing apples to apples, um, let's see, the numbers, total compensation at uh, GM was $80,000 last year, 74600 at Ford. For American Honda, uh, the compensation was seventy nine thousand for Toyota. It was seventy five thousand. So you have again. Imagine what's going to happen if you increase costs at Ford and at General Motors by. Well, Stellantis came up with a twenty one percent offer, and the union sneered at that. They want thirty five or forty percent. So if all of a sudden you take their labor costs and you increase them twenty five, thirty, thirty five, forty percent over the next four years. Imagine what that's going, and they want cost of living adjustments on top of that, and 
the four-day work week um, with uh, for the same amount of salary. Imagine what the disparity is going to be between, I don't know, the right-to-work states, for example, and I think you see what the problem is moving forward. Mike in northwest Milwaukee. Mike, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Mike. Mike, Mike, Mike. Okay. Scott in south Milwaukee. Scott, you're on WTMJ. Hi, Jeff. Um, Hi, yeah, on this specific topic, on this specific topic, um, when it comes to the demands of the UAW, I, mean, I think that the forty percent pay increase is over the top, and I think that the work thirty-two get paid for forty is also unrealistic. But from a little background standpoint, because I, I work for the organization, I work for whatever it's a global company. We have manufacturing operations, whatever, all over the globe. But in recent um, like town halls with the CEO. A common question, which has been which has been raised by, I would say, American workers, is that when they're looking at at their European at their European counterparts, and they see whatever how in Europe whatever they work 32 hours a week, get paid for 40 hours, they get the they, they basically get half of the month of July and all of the month of all of the month of August off. So what's going on here? Whatever is that. Of that the American labor unions, whatever they're looking at, what the trade unions are doing in Europe, mm-hmm. and they're basically whatever saying it's like, right? Why do why are we working so hard and working so much, whatever, when compared to to our to our, our our European brothers and sisters, and they're shipping whatever more and more work, whatever over over to Europe than what they are within what they are domestically. Do you think that's a reasonable position to take to say, hey, we need to be more like France, which has, what, like, what, what's France's retirement age, 62 or something like that? I mean, is, is that a winning comparison to say we want to be more like France or Germany or whatever? I, from, I would just say from a pure dollars and cents standpoint, um, I don't think that it is from Ameri- from competitiveness of, from an American standpoint. Yeah. But that's what, but yeah. that's what the, that's what the workers on the ground are. Are comparing themselves to because that's what upper management, whatever is comparing, is comparing them to. Yeah, no, thanks. For, I mean, and I get. I mean, I understand that that's the issue. Let's try. Oh, I lost Mike there. Okay. Um, that, that's and, and look, and I and I get. And the, the argument is this: this is this ultimate class warfare thing, and it's like, okay, well, look, the CEO of General Motors makes twenty-one million dollars last year, and the CEO of Ford makes twenty-nine, or vice versa, whatever that was. And and so this is it's like power to the people. You know, we we need to have some sort of sharing thing, and I don't. I mean, I think that there, there is an element of, of that that's there, and I think it's, and I think there are fair concerns. You want to say, hey, look, you know, if the company's made a bunch of money, it's it's reasonable to expect there to be reasonable increases. But I think for most people, when you hear, you know, thirty five percent, you know, over four years, and then we want cost of living, and then we want to only work four days, but we're paid as if we, you know, worked five. I think you sit there and you say, okay. This is this is economically devastating. I mean, again, the the guy from Ford says, if if we did this, the average pay would be nearly three hundred thousand dollars for a four day work week. So this is the, the company would be bankrupt in the course of just a, a couple years. I mean, I think you know it, it's fair to say, all right, you know, we made concessions over the years. The company has come back. I mean, Ford was almost dead in two thousand seven. All right, the, the, the companies made concessions. You know, we want a share of it. But it is interesting to me that, you know, the, the company offers a 21% pay increase, 21%, and, and you sneer at it. I mean, seriously, really? Um, 
there, there's no question about it. And one of our texters says they work for 30 plus years and he could retire at the age of 58, wish them well and hope they get all they can. Well, I, that's, that, that's, that's all well and good. And I mean, ultimately that's going to decide, but at some point in time, you end up, you end up, you know, killing the, the goose that laid the golden egg because you just make yourself completely and totally non-competitive. And I go back to, you know, the, the question I started with in the beginning, that if the labor costs increase dramatically and as a result, you know, your Ford or your Chevy product costs thousands of dollars more, even let, let's, let's say it's, it's four or five grand more for a comparable product that's being made by Nissan or by Honda or by Toyota or by Hyundai or whatever, are are you going to pay that extra four or five thousand dollars? And I think the answer for most people is is no, that they're not going to. So that's why there's this delicate balance between, hey, we want workers to have more money, but at the same time, you know, this idea that okay, we're going to go to war, and that this idea of doing everything they can to hurt the auto manufacturers, how dumb. I mean, look, this, okay, we're going to do selective strikes. So what we're going to do is we're going to try to, you know, again, uh, try to pick out this is a productive plant. We're going to try to shut that down. We'll teach them a lesson. Yeah, well, the, the lesson you might be teaching them is, okay, maybe it's time to move those jobs somewhere else. And the truth of the matter is because automakers have made a bunch of money over the last several years, my guess is that the automakers are better positioned to withstand a, a long-term strike than the different employees are. Just saying, because there's a lot of difference between, okay, you're on strike, you get $500 a week, versus, hey, you're making eighty grand a year and they're willing to give you a 20 to 25% pay boost on top of that. Well, okay, big you know, big difference between $2,000 a month and that sort of money. So don't know how this is going to play out, but I think the UAW leadership, very, very militant. I think that they are playing with fire. And you heard it here. If they get it, God bless them. But for the rest of us, if that means that the cost of USA-made cars, and look, I, I own Hondas that are made in this country. I own I own a Ford product as well. Love it. I just absolutely love it. Would have no trouble buying another Ford product. But if it was thousands of dollars more because of increased labor costs than a comparable Honda or Toyota or Nissan product, sorry, I'm going to Honda or Nissan or Toyota. We'll continue to discuss this as the strike wears on.